How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful. Your eyes are like doves. You are so handsome, my love, pleasing beyond words. The soft grass is our couch. Fragrant cedar branches are beams of our house, and pleasant-smelling firs are the rafters. I am the spring crocus blooming on the Sharon Plain, the lily of the valley. Like a lily among thistles is my darling among young women. Like the finest apple tree in the orchard is my love among other young men. I sit in his delightful shade, and his fruit gives me strength and joy. He escorts me to the banquet hall. It's obvious how much he loves me. Strengthen me with raisin cakes. Refresh me with apples, for I am weak with love. His left arm holds my head, and his right arm embraces me. Promise me, O women of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and wild deer, not to awaken love until the time is right. This is the word of God. Let's pray for the sermon. Lord God, you love us with a love that is deep, and you give us those that we can share that love with through you. Lord, I ask that you bless Kyle as he brings your message. Let the word be planted in our hearts and help us to grow understanding of you. In Jesus' name. Thank you. You may be seated. Yesterday, God gathered um, over 100 people in this chapel. It was packed, um, standing room only, basically. There were so many people here, and it was really, truly a God moment. Um, I don't think anyone was expecting that kind of turnout. We had a memorial service for Matt McGinn, which some of you know. And um, in this moment, it was just um, provided by God to be able to minister to the gospel to a lot of people that don't know him. And I just wanted to pause a moment to just acknowledge the significance of moments like that, because if this church weren't here, we wouldn't be able to do that, right? Like, we have these opportunities because you guys are faithful. Um, You love Christ. You're generous with your time, with your finances. Um, There's a regularity to many of you, and we wouldn't be able to do that, to do what we do without you all, to share the gospel with people in the best of times and the worst of times. And I just wanted to thank you all for just being such a wonderful family and a wonderful church. And I I also just wanted to thank, I don't know where he went, but I don't see him, Mike Asselin. He was here all day yesterday. Um, He's hiding in the back. (laughs) He was here like probably for about eight hours yesterday. Um, doing the sound and making sure everything was running well for that memorial service. So thank you, Brother Mike, um, for taking so much time. And also thanks to, to Joe, Joe and Mike Sakuro and Bill um, for just their portion, too. I mean, there were so many people here. There was no place to park, and Joe and Bill had to run outside to make sure that people weren't, like, um, doing donuts in the grass, you know? Like, so they... Um, they were really helpful yesterday. I'm just so thankful for Mike Sekiro's portion and how he delivered such a wonderful word about his friend and about his God to many people yesterday. So thank you all. So now I, I have the privilege of continuing this wonderful book of the Bible, the Song of Solomon. And today's sermon is entitled Week with Love. There is a Bible scholar named Pico Iyer. And he comments that the Song of Solomon, which is an Old Testament book um, in its poetry, if you're new to the series and new to scripture, but he comments that pastors throughout church history have preached 
more sermons, and scholars have commented more on this book than any other book in the Bible. Isn't that surprising? Um, there's so many, like, I would think it might be Romans or one of the Gospels, right? Like, but Song of Solomon um, is, is the most commented on and preached on book of the Bible in, throughout, throughout church history. I'm not saying that this century it's the same or even last century, but throughout church history, if you look at all the works and all the sermons and all the books written on the Bible, the Song of Solomon gets the most attention. So that's the early church fathers. That the, the, those were the pastors that lived around the time of the apostles. So Mark, Luke, John, all these different. Mark was an apostle, but was not an apostle. But you know what I mean. The medieval church, this is like the Middle Ages, right? Knights and all this. So the medieval church, even the Puritans poured over, meditated on this book more than any other book in Scripture. Now, why, why might this be? And it's, it's sore neglected, I think, on our repertoire of Bible reading, isn't it? Um, we don't really approach it too much, and it's not because, uh, pr it's probably not always very intentional, but as Christians, we usually gravitate towards the epistles or towards the gospels and things like this. Now, of course, all scripture is inspired by God, so any Bible you're reading, you're doing is not a waste. But why, why might this book in the Bible get so much, so much attention? Now, it could be because it's about love, romance, and sex, right? Um, possibly. You get a lot of that in it, right? We've already noted that the ancient rabbis even told young Jewish boys not even to read the Song of Solomon until they were 30. <laughs> right? And, and so you might have gotten some of the gist as to of why by the, even the Bible reading this morning, and that's a little bit timid um, as, you, as we progress in the book. The text itself in Scripture we just read even warns us to not awaken love before the right time. So even the writer of the text is aware of the fact that even reading this could incite us to some kind of love or, pre, or excuse me, premature sort of like erotic fantasy. And the, the writer even warns us, be careful when you proceed to read this. Don't awaken love before it's time. And we might reply to the writer, well, you're not really helping right? Tone it down, lady. All this right arm under my head stuff, and your, the grass is our bed stuff, and all, all of this talk doesn't really help. Now, I wonder if these poor, chaste monks of old might have been so interested in their celibate condition because they could sort of fantasize about the romance that they vowed to sacrifice. Maybe that's why they came to it, but I don't think so. I think sometimes that's maybe the, the perverse side of us that sorts, likes to read um, things more to gratify our flesh and draw out from it what I think is the main point of the book. Now, isn't it true that God created romance? That's, that's one lesson that we can take away from the Song of Solomon and enjoy the fact that he created us to be married, to love, to have union and intimacy with each other. That's great in its proper context. He, God designed you to be weak with love. That's what the, the testimony of these two lovers are. We are weak with love. But friends, I want to challenge us and remind us that the weakness we should feel primarily should be over the love of God. 
the love that he gives to us through Christ. And we know this to be true. We have a deep in our gut need for God. Even more so, I think, than our relationships around us, there's something deep in our bellies that knows we need to love God. I was speaking with Tammy, actually, a couple of days ago about the funeral service, the memorial service I was doing yesterday, and I was commenting on how I didn't really know Matt too well, and sometimes it's difficult and challenging when you're kind of addressing a group of people, family and friends, when you didn't really know the person too well. Sometimes funeral homes even will call you um, to officiate a service for people you've never even met because they, they don't know a pastor or a priest. But, but we were reflecting on the fact that it, it's interesting that for people who are irreligious, have maybe very few religious beliefs or any re religious expression at all, still want a pastor present at the most significant moments of their lives. Because I believe we have a deep in our gut need for God. We can run from him, we can fight him, we can resist him, but eternity is in our hearts. The echo of the divine romance resounds. And we confuse it with all the little micro-crushes of our lives. The little mini-romances that we confuse with the real love need that we have for our Creator. All the sexual encounters we aim to answer that void in our heart to be loved by God and to love Him in return. Yet after all, all of these, isn't it true, all these counterfeit mini-romances that we experience through life, even in marriage, that echo still resounds. It didn't satisfy the way we thought it would. We're left wanting more. And it's because you were made, you were created to be betrothed to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the creator of all things, first. Amen? It's almost like we confuse the voice of God like Samuel did in the Old Testament. Do you remember Samuel heard a voice in the middle of the night and he runs to his teacher Eli who's in the next room. You called, he says. Eli says, no, go back to sleep. It wasn't me. And continually this goes on throughout the night. You called, Eli. No, I didn't call. Go back to bed. Then finally he says, Eli tells him, it's not me you're looking for. It's not my voice you're after. I'm not the one calling you. It's the Lord. And might I suggest to you that this morning that our romantic impulses are not ultimately being called, aroused, or provoked by another person, but by God himself. We think it's a woman or a man calling us, but it's not. It's God. Spiritually speaking, as Christians, I don't even think half the time, some of us know this, right? We're, we're Christians. We're like, okay, I'm with you. I'm tracking. I get all this. But we don't live practically day to day as betrothed to the King of Kings. We live spiritually, functionally single. Unfortunately, most of our time, I think, is spent as Christians just operating independently from the bridegroom. We don't talk to him. We don't consider him. We don't ask him if he wants us to go left or right today. We're just too busy and determined in our own agendas to even consider where he wants to lead us and much less talk about him. How many people have ever been around a teenager in love? 
they tend to talk about that person a lot, don't they? They tend to usually have them with them most of the time, too. Wherever they're going, that person is there, waiting for them. You know, and as adults, we're like, this isn't healthy. You've got to chill out. There are other people in the world. It's probably not going to work out. So you might want to just chill out a little bit. Right? But isn't real love, isn't real passion sort of like that? They're just, when you really love someone, they're sort of in the back of your mind always. You think about them. You talk about them. You're not embarrassed by their presence, and you're not ashamed to talk about them. You see, friends, if we're Christians, why are we ashamed, afraid to talk about our lovely Lord? Why do we hide him? Why do we not consider him when we turn left? Or left? You know what Augustine said? He said, he, and he lived in about the 400s, so many, many centuries ago. He said, late it was that I loved you. Beauty so ancient and so new. Oh, I came to know your love much too late in life. Much, much too late. Oh, and friend, if you're young, don't let your whole life go by before you respond to the romantic advance of God and heaven. And if you're old, er, don't waste another minute. He says, you called, you cried out, you shattered my deafness, you flashed, you shone, you scattered my blindness, you breathed perfume, and I drew in my breath, and I pant for you, I taste, and I'm hungry, I'm thirsty for you. He's talking about God, right? Why do you think they loved the Song of Solomon so much? You touched me, and I burned for you in your peace. You see, this... This almost sounds like what we're reading, doesn't it? You see, because Augustine gets it. He gets it. I would suggest to you that you're really not ready to have passion for another human being until you have passion for God. Because what you do, if you don't, is they turn into God for you. And it doesn't work. And it destroys the relationship. Our desire for this sort of intimacy with God. Oh, this is powerful. I should have underlined this. Because sometimes when I don't underline something, I skip it. Because <laughs> I'm in a hurry. Sometimes. Your desire for this sort of intimacy with God is the best indicator of your spiritual health. I'm, I'm suggesting something kind of challenging to myself and to you all. That if this sort of Augustine-like statement is missing from our lives, then something's wrong. If you don't love God like this, something is wrong. I'm not saying this to shame you. I'm saying this as an opportunity because you can change. The Bible calls that repentance. In a moment, you can just say, I'm going after you. I'm missing your scent, and I need to start believing in you again. What's your temperature, friends, for this divine love? Are you sick? Are you dying? Are you flatlining? Are you unable to feel much of anything for him? Is it just easy for you to really not talk about him or, you know, want to be around his people or hear his word. It's just very simple to miss. It doesn't bother you. 
You see, friends, when we're in love, it bothers us to not talk to our spouse or the one we love. It bothers us to be away from them. It bothers us that they're not in the room with us. And that's not bad. That's good. If you're away from your husband or your wife too long, it should bother you. You should miss them. Right? And I would suggest to you that if you don't, there's something wrong with your marriage. Something is dying. Why is it any different with our relationship with God? It's not. It's not, friends. The text brings out three things that we're going to talk about for the rest of our time together that talks about the kind of romance that exists in a healthy relationship with each other and marriage and also with God in our spiritual lives. Beauty, home, and passion. These are the three things. Beauty, home, and passion. How do we know that this is a healthy, romantic love relationship? Well, we see three things. Beauty, home, and passion. Let's talk about it. Now, we got uh, a window last week into the imagination when we started this sermon series. They're sort of thinking about each other. It's a, it's a window into their minds. They really aren't interacting yet last week, but now they are. They're starting to talk. Something actually is happening between the two of them. So they're whisked, last week, they're whisked away by imagining the other person's kiss and touch and voice and scent and all these different things. And you've been there, I bet. Okay? But now they begin to speak to each other. And their words, if we're honest, are sort of sickening. They're like teenagers in love that lack the ability to verbalize the emotions of their heart. You're, you're so beautiful. No, you're beautiful. Right? Like, you're so amazing. No, you're amazing. It seems like this is happening, but actually I think we would be misreading that a little bit. But, so before we're, we're too hard on these two and what's actually happening in the text, I want you to consider that they're acting on what is the only way a romantic love relationship can grow and be healthy and have life. And that is through what one person called emotionally intimate communication. Emotionally intimate communication. Your marriage, your love relationships will shrivel up and die if they do not have emotionally intimate communication. She says, oh, I'm sorry, he says, you're so beautiful, your eyes are like doves. To which she responds, you're so handsome, yet I'm like the lily of the field. And he replies, yes, like a lily among thistles is my darling among young women. Now we might miss something that's happening here that I think is very important. They're not trying to out-compliment each other, right? Like this isn't some kind of game or competition that they're playing. More than that is going on, and I think we have some slides for this on the screen. More than that's going on in their exchange of words. And we've got to notice some things that, that make this important. First, for a romantic relationship to thrive and grow before and after marriage, you must be able to see the beauty in the other person, even if they don't see it in themselves. If all you see is that they leave clothes on the floor, if all you see is that they're always late, if all you see is that they spend too much money, right? If they annoy you because their car has to be so clean all the time, right? If all you see is their negative qualities, the things that tick you off, those little idiosyncrasies, 
Those things wear on you over time. You don't, begin, you don't see the beauty in them anymore. And now all you see is what you think is so unlovely about them. For a romantic relationship to thrive and grow before and after marriage, you have to see the beauty in the other person, even if they don't see it in themselves, even if you have a hard time seeing it at times. Number two, you need to take the time to talk about the deep truths buried in your souls with each other. That's very important. Third, you need to communicate the beauty that you see to counter the negative identity that the other communicates to you. You know, I feel like I'm not measuring up. I feel like I can't be good enough. I feel like I'm ugly. You see, friends, if you don't have those conversations, you won't hear the insecurities of their soul and you won't be able to speak life back to them. Fourth, you need to be sincere in your talk. What I mean by that is you need to believe what you're saying. You can't just lie and you can't just go through the motions because, first of all, they'll see it. And second of all, it won't work. You need to delight in this opportunity that you have to reserve, to reverse the negative assessment that they have about themselves. You need to be happy that that's your job. Number five, you need to begin to identify yourself with the objective assessments of your lover. In other words, their communicated opinion is the one that matters. Not the other guy across the street. Not your boss. Not even you. You see? What matters is what they see. You see? So we need to hear over and over again what our spouse sees in us. They need to tell us, and we need to tell them. Because deep within the human heart is a real insecurity. And unless we're willing to tirelessly reverse that insecurity, those insecurities are just going to deepen and widen and harden. Okay? Lovers are not, cannot, must not, should not be quiet. The woman says, I'm a lily, okay? All right, this is pretty good. She's got a pretty good body image, right? Like, she's got a good self-image. She's, she's comparing herself to a flower. That's nice. But I, I don't want you to miss something here because lilies then were common wildflowers, okay? They're not the kind that you plant on purpose. <laughs> you see? They're not roses. They're not, what's, I don't, that's all the flowers I know. I'm out. <laughs> Give me another one. They're not car carnations, right? I don't, I don't like carnations. Give me another one. Right? They're, right? There's many flowers that we love, that we love to smell, that we plant them on purpose. But there's some flowers, how many people plant dandelions? They do, no, we don't do that. They grow. We get, we get weed killer for those. Right? Like spray no, you don't. Yeah, we need the bees. I got the, the farmer. Don't kill them. But some of us do, right? We want our green grass, so we get rid of our dandelions. She feels like she's a six out of a ten, right? Maybe a five on, on you know, a six on a good day, five most days. And it's like she's saying she's like a dandelion in those fields out there in a soccer field. So what does he say in reply? He gets a window into her soul. He's actually around to hear it. He's not mowing the lawn. 
right? He's not fixing pipes. He's talking to her, and she's telling him how she feels about herself. So what does he say in reply? He says, okay, you're a lily, but you're like a lily among thistles. If all the flowers in the world were weeds, then I'd agree with you. He's saying, you're one of a kind. There is no flower more beautiful than you. You see, you're, you think that, there, that you're less than someone else, but to me, you're not. To me, you're a lily among thistles. And I should feel like that about my wife. No offense, ladies, but you're the thistles. Because <laughs> I'm not married to you. And if you're the lily to me, then something's happened that I need to repent of. Right? So it's not enough to cook or clean or make money, mow the lawn, fix leaky pipes, do all these things. Those are all great. And I know some of you, my love language is service. And I get it, okay? We need to serve each other, do, and give, give, give gifts. But you need to stop and listen. And men, we're not good at this. If you're anything like me, you're not good at this. You'd rather busy yourself to show love. Paint a house, build a shed. That's how I show love. But you need to hear each other. And I, might, I might suggest to you, too, that this is not just true in romantic relationships. This is true in friendships, too. To have a really deep, meaningful, loving friendship, it can't just be small talk. You've got to look into each other's souls. This kind of romantic relationship is safe. And because it's safe, it's home. That's number two. Here these two are not just Googling into each other's eyes. They, re- they want home with each other. They want to live the rest of their lives with each other. The woman, as we notice, begins to repeat some things back to him. You're handsome too. I think you're pretty cute as well, right? But then she expresses her love. She calls him handsome, so on. And she opens up, though, about what she's really after. She describes the kind of, of home she knows that he'll work for. And the home that he'll work for is described in a handful of ways today. First of all, we already described one, so I'm not going to repeat it. It's a real one. It's a soul one. It's one that's honest and open, that speaks words and beauty into each other. Okay? But she says his couch is green or his bed is green. The beams are cedar. The rafters are pine. So she's describing a house. She's not just saying, like, hey, let's have a good time, right? Because you're really cute. That's not what's going on here. She wants a long, long, committed relationship with him. She wants him to be her husband. The intimate pursuit is leading toward a home, toward life together. And that's why I would suggest to you, friends, this is hard. I'm going to, you know... When I was young, they used to say, you know, like, don't be physical before marriage because it's dangerous, right? I would even suggest to you, be very careful with romance before marriage. Because if you start getting romantic and you're not willing to say, I'm going to marry you, I'm going to spend the rest of my life with you, then you're really deceiving each other. Because romance should communicate that. But that's another thing for another time. Let's go on. She wants a home... She says, there's an apple tree. 
Right? Okay, good. What are, what are trees? Well, they're strong. They protect. They provide shade, comfort. They're fruitful. Right? There's stability. She trusts this man. And she trusts him, not because he provides, but, but because her soul, like we just saw, is safe with him. Her beloved's home is a banner. A banner in, in this time was uh, a signal of power and identity, like in a military, right, in battle. These were the archers. These were the infantry, etc. Their banner identified them, who they were, their character, what they were, what they were capable of. And his flag captured her heart. Her beloved's home is intimate union. His arms are wrapped around her, right? As we saw in the text. It's safe to be in this embrace because they're committed to each other in marriage and because of the beauty they both selflessly announce on each other. They're safe so they can be intimate with each other. And so many times we, we do not know if we're safe with a person before we're intimate with them. Friends, has it become hard to talk to your spouse, to your friend, to your boyfriend, to your girlfriend, right? Someone you're serious with in a meaningful way to listen to them, to speak kindness to them? Is your banner love or war? You see, his banner was love. There's a safe relationship leading these two home to which naturally in marriage, and even just before marriage, provokes passion, love, and intimacy. And let's go on to this now. A healthy, romantic love relationship between a man and a woman in marriage is passionate. And prior to marriage, it's patient. Okay? Oh, we're not patient. Let's go. Okay. We spoke in another sermon that you cannot have intimacy without covenant. It's not safe to. You don't know that you can trust them, right? But in the, here, the woman's heart is racing, and the man's heart is racing. They're pretzeled up together, right? Their arms are around each other. One is behind her head, another is behind her back. There's not much room here for the Holy Spirit, right? You see where this is leading. How many people know, so what's the progression here? They start imagining, in chapter 1, kissing each other, speaking to each other, smelling each other. Just all the senses are involved. Leading to, like, gazing into each other's eyes. They're like doves. They're like eye-locked now, right? Then, now they're embracing one arm around the head, another around the waist. You can see where this is going. And how many people know that once you're there, there's usually only one more place to go. And there's not much that will stop it. So she stops and she warns, promise me, a woman of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and the wild deer, do not awaken love until the right time. So they imagine, kiss. They start to romantic talk each other. They're looking into each other's eyes. 
they're embracing each other now. They're getting closer and closer. Uh-oh. We might all need to take a break and go outside and smell the dandelions, right? Um, and she agrees. Because suddenly, in the narrative, there's a hard stop. She, all of a sudden, we have all this intimacy and ro romance and embrace, and then all of a sudden, she stops and she sings a song about virginity. Isn't that shocking? <laughs> that's, that's not where I thought this was headed. She sings a song about virginity, a, a, an interruption in the story. She's saying, once you're where we are, there's only one more place to go, and there's usually no turning back, so don't get here until you're ready. Okay? Sexual desire is like a sleeping lion, and if you poke it, it will wake up, and it will have its way. She mentions the deer and the gazelles. Say, promise me, women of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and by the wild deer. You know, sometimes we read things in Scripture, and we think they could have just said anything here. By the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, right? Like, they, they're just being poetic. But there's something more going on here by mentioning gazelles and deers. In the ancient Near East, these were symbols of sexual intimacy because they were incredibly fertile, right? So they were symbols of sexuality. So she's not saying, don't awaken your desire for chocolate cake, right? Or for playing a nice game of parcheesi, right? Like, she's saying, don't, by, by the deers and by the gazelles, do not awaken love until the time is right. And, and by the way, this advice isn't coming from, like, an older woman who's lived life, this wise old sage, hey, don't make the mistakes that I made. No, she is young and beautiful and passionate. This is advice about virginity coming from a knockout 18-year-old girl. Yay. <laughs> she prizes it. She's telling us to, do, to wait and even to deny our passions. Now that is countercultural, isn't it? Not to provoke them. She's saying no. But ultimately, and don't miss this, she's saying no so that later she can say yes. The no is leading to a yes. If it's the right time with the right person. She's so convinced that purity and chastity are the greatest ideal that she starts to sing about it. Now set this in contrast to the myriad of songs today indulging in any sexual scenario that you can imagine. It's countercultural, isn't it? That was the song that they were singing in ancient Israel about virginity. I guess the closest we get to it is Beyonce's, if you like it, put a ring on it, right? <laughs> well, I'll take it. That's the best we got, right? It's not God being a buzzkill. It's not God denying us pleasure or life or happiness. Quite the opposite. God doesn't want us to settle for smaller pleasures that result in great pain. You see, there's a greater pleasure that does not bring pain with it. And God is saying, wait, it's better. Friend, if a person is not willing to commit 
themselves to you in marriage, the epitome of selfishness is to take for themselves what does not belong to them. They do not love you. They don't. They might say it so that they can get you in their room, but they don't. We need to learn more with less. Let me explain to you what I mean. Do you know that some time ago, going to the movies with a girl meant, I think I kind of like you, right? That's what that meant. You would sit near each other, and you're kind of like, I think I kind of like you. I don't know yet, really, what's going on. I need to get to know you better, right? Holding hands was like the next level. We're steady, right? That's an old word. That's like a Marsha Brady word. He's my boyfriend, right? We got that status. Or if you're from the 1700s, we're courting, okay? A romantic kiss was like, I just asked her to marry me, and she said yes, right? You see, these, these physical symbols of romance and these expressions meant something. Sexual union was the communication of a lifelong commitment in marriage. And what we've done in our culture is, is that we've demoted sex, We've made it mean what movies mean. I, I think I like you. Right? And that, th- here's how I'm going to show you that. And friends, when we demote these things, what's left when we approach marriage to demonstrate to the other person a till death do us part love? There's nothing left to show anymore. You see, I'm not trying to guilt or shame anybody here because the Bible says, and you shouldn't feel guilt or shame if you've fallen, because the Bible says your sins are buried in the sea of forgetfulness. They're, they're, as far as the east is from the west, he gives you a new star. All old things are past. All things have become new. So in redemption, you get a reset button. But friends, there, it comes with consequences. Mean more with less. Do not awaken love until the time is right. Now friends, up until now, Maybe in our introduction I talked about God a little, but you, you seem like you might have got, I think you got a little distracted there, buddy. Um, but there's a dance, like I said before when we introduced this in the Song of Solomon, a sort of waltz that takes us in one side to what, it, what a marriage is look like, healthy marriages and love and relationships and all this, to the other side of divine love. So we need to see what is God speaking to us about his love for us? What's the verdict, friends? that he is pronounced on you. What does the bridegroom say in response to your insecurities? You see, friends, we feel the weight of our own sin, don't we? We don't feel the beauty that God sees in us. We feel ourselves to be common dandelions. But in his presence, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, we are not those things. We are unique we are made in his image, saved by grace, fearfully. This is what God, God says about you in Christ, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, that you are his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works, Ephesians chapter 2. He clothes you with lo- white robes of righteousness. It's as if you never failed him ever because of what Christ did for you if you've put faith in him. He listens to you. He knows your soul. He bids you to be completely naked in front of him so that he can counter all of your negative self-assessments. Do you tell him, I don't feel myself worth much, God. 
You see, like the, like the woman did here, I'm just a lily. Do you speak to God like this? And do you hear his voice come back to you with truth? And do you return it to him? You're beautiful. No, you are beautiful, God. Heaven announces your beauty. You put the stars in the sky. The deer pants, so I pant for you. The heavens declare your glory. You see what I'm doing? What does the word of God say about our God? What does your conscience say about God? What do you speak back to him? What romantic gesture do you make to God? You see? Who is like our God, seated on high, giving the barren woman a home? Oh, you are powerful, our lovely Lord. Do you speak back to him all that he is? You see, that's where love will come from, and that's where you'll be at home with your creator. Do you picture the home that he's making for you right now of cedar? Do you know that his banner over you is love and not war? That his pillars are indestructible? That he he saved you in Christ? If indeed you have repented and believed in Christ, he saved you in Christ for the purpose of building you a home and bringing you into it to be married to you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is his home. And there you'll live under the shade of his tree and eat better apples. It's his right and left arms around you, gazing into your eyes. Do you know that kind of passion? Beauty, home, passion. Do you thirst for him? Pant for him? Are you passionate for him? Do you long to be with him? To be clothed by him? Do you talk about him to others? Do you even warn others that without the covenant, they'll lose the king? That that love is there for them too. And friend, without the covenant, you'll lose the king. Come to him by faith. Repent of your sin. Turn from it. And accept his proposal to you, to be wed to you, to forgive you, to clothe you, to give you an eternal home. Behold, I go and I prepare a place for you. And if I go, will I not come back and bring you to where I am? Do you meditate like David on his words day and night? Do you catch his scent in the flowers? and in the trees, and in the spring air? Do you see his beauty in the stars, and in the mountains, and in the oceans? Are you so weak with love for God? It says, don't don't awaken love before it's time. Well, friends, Jesus is alive. It's time. Come to him. Come and get it. He's better. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that your people would sit in the soft grass under the shade of your tree and know the fruit of union with our Maker. I pray, God, that we, like Christ, would love our wives like Christ. that wives would love their husbands like this. Forgive us.
God, if it's sometimes too late, humanly speaking, it's never too late with you. And you're the better spouse anyway. You forgive us. And you offer us so much joy and happiness. I pray, Lord, that we would always pursue it. And friend, if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, come to him by faith. Accept his proposal. He loves you. He died for you. He died for people like us so that we might be in his home forever. Would you call out to him right now? God, save me a sinner. I've loved everything but you, and I've loved you much too late. 